the last time we um, had um, our Bible study, we, you, you will remember, traced the story of the English Bible from Anglo-Saxon times right down to the um, authorized version of 1611. I'm not going to go over that at all this evening. I'm going to commence just as if we're, we were carrying on from that time at the same uh, time. And um, the next version, there were a number of versions actually, that um, were produced between uh, the years 1611, between the authorized version and the revised version of 18. 81. Uh, between that time, quite a number of versions were produced. You may be interested to know, for instance, that John Wesley um, actually uh, produced a New Testament in English. In fact, he was one of the first to put paragraphs, put the New Testament into paragraphs, which was copied later um, by some of the others. But there are two notable, at least as I see it, two notable um, translations of the Bible before the actual revised version of 1881. The first was the new translation. It was called a new translation and was the work of J.N. Darby. Um, now here uh, in this... Um, uh, chronology in this uh, sort of chart, and I have put down the first date. It's usual, for instance, to call the um, revised version the 1881 version. In fact, the Old Testament wasn't brought out to 1885, and it was exactly the same with J.N. Darby's new translation of the Bible. The New Testament came out in 1871, the Old Testament came out in 1890. But I have followed precedent and put it down here by the date of the first part of the work coming out, 1871. Now, Darby was, of course, as I think most of you know, one of the leaders of the Brethren movement, a man greatly used of God in his day. And he was no mean scholar. He was an accomplished Greek scholar. He was no small Hebrew scholar. He spoke a number of continental languages fluently. In fact, his translation of the Bible followed his translation from Greek and Hebrew into German and into French. That's no mean feat uh, for a man whose mother tongue was English. In fact, the Elberfeld version German is still considered to be a very good one indeed. His English translation, um, considering that it is the work of one man, is remarkably good. It's a very literal rendering indeed, and not in good English. Um, I think some of you have got um, Darby's version. I've only got the New Testament here. It is, however, even though it is very um, stilted English, um, it is, in fact, based on very sound critical judgment. And whatever that people might think about Darby and his writings, 
The revisers, who finally produced the revised version of 1881, used his New Testament uh, in their revision. Um, it's still a very valuable translation indeed, and I might add the cheapest version you can get. Um, because the brethren refused to make any profit at all uh, upon their publication, publishing of God's word, it remains one of the cheapest and still one of the most valuable uh, and accurate versions of God's word, albeit not in good English. I'm going to read one little part which I think will help you to understand what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. I'm going to read it in uh, J.M. Darby's version. Oh, by the way, um, he has the most interesting uh, footnotes, which do require, actually, quite an amount of intelligence to understand. However, for the, student, the serious student, they, once you've got the hang of them, they are very, very helpful indeed, and it was that which helped the revisers so much. And when you consider that Darby's version had no precedent, it had nothing to go on, it really is a remarkable feat from a very busy life. But now Christ is raised from among the dead. Okay? First fruits are those fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also resurrection of those that are dead. Now that's very bad English. Uh, for, as in that in, for as in the Adam all die, thus also in the Christ all shall be made alive but each in his own rank, the first fruits, Christ, then those that are the Christs that is coming, then the end, when he gives up the kingdom to who, him who is God and Father, when he shall have annulled all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he put all enemies under his feet. There's just a little, uh, just a little example of Darby's version. The other version that is interesting and noteworthy is a very copious uh, <coughs> volume indeed. Um, it is entitled The Emphasized Bible and um, uh, was brought out, was, uh, published in 1872, the New Testament was, and then it was followed by the Old Testament between the years 1897 and 1902. This is again a very literal translation by a very good Greek and Hebrew scholar, but it sometimes makes very hard reading. It's not the kind of... Um, uh, um, translation you can read just before you go to bed. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very helpful version, again, but it is not so easy to read. The text is set out in such a way as to convey the most detailed shades of meaning in the original languages, hence the title, The Emphasized Bible. And when you go through it, it is in fact very interesting to discover, for those who cannot read Hebrew and Greek, it is very interesting indeed to discover just where the emphasis was in the original. And this Rotherham has done for us and done very well. He's been very careful about the titles of the Lord. In fact, it was the first version ever to use the name Yahweh or Jehovah for the Lord. 
uh, actually in the text. Um, I'm going to read two portions which I personally have always found rather wonderful. It's filled with, with treasures, but it's not easy to read at length. But if you persevere, you'll find some wonderful treasures. Now, I think this version of Genesis 18 from verse 9 brings to life in a way that the, our other versions don't, the whole story of Sarah and Abraham. Verse 9. And they said unto him, the heavenly messengers, they said unto Abraham, As to Sarah thy wife, and he said, Lo, she's in the tent. And he said, I will surely return unto thee at the quickening season, and lo, a son for Sarah thy wife. Now Sarah was hearkening at the opening of the tent, it being just behind him. But Abraham and Sarah were old, far gone in days. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So then Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am past age, hath there come to me pleasure, my Lord also being old? And, and Jehovah said unto Abraham, Wherefore now did Sarah laugh, saying, Can it really and truly be that I should bear, seeing that I have become old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord, for Jehovah? At the appointed time I will return unto thee at the quickening season, and Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. Now to me it brings it all alive, you see, because Sarah was behind uh, the uh, flap of the tent listening, you see. And uh, first of all, uh, she overheard this conversation, starts to laugh within herself, you see, and then she heard what the man said. And then it says it was the Lord, Jehovah. He suddenly turned around and said through the tent to her um, uh, about her laughing. And she speaks through the tent to him and says, but I didn't laugh. He says, yes, you did. I find it very amusing to think of them holding a conversation through the actual material of the tent. And then the other thing as another little example of uh, Rotherham's version. Uh, by the way, have you ever um, realized that the emphasis in is anything too hard or is anything too wonderful for the Lord is not is anything too hard for the Lord. I've always said that. It's, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Now that's rather wonderful, isn't it? Uh, the emphasis. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Now that's where Rotherham's version helps us to understand the shades of emphasis and meaning in the original which English cannot give us. And then here there's another lovely little portion in Isaiah chapter 12. I have mentioned this one Sunday morning and verse I'll read it to you. Lo, God is my salvation. I will trust and not dread. For my might and melody is Jehovah, and he has become mine by salvation. Oh, that's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And uh, um, Rotherham's version is well worth reading just to get a few nuggets like that. I wish they'd brought that into the revised version. Um, the Lord is my might and my melody, 
and he has become mine by salvation. Now that is beautifully put. Um, then um, we come to the next really great uh, version of the English Bible, which is the revised version of 1881. The authorized version, as you remember, I pointed out to you, has been described as the greatest of all translations, the greatest of English books, the greatest of the English classics, the source of the greatest influence upon English character and English speech. If it is true, on the natural level, its spiritual influence can never be overrated. Nevertheless, as time passed, it became obvious to Bible scholars that a new version was required. Indeed, as I've already said, between 1611 and 1881, quite a number of new translations appeared, but none were sufficiently important to be placed alongside the authorized version. The more important reasons felt for a new version were as follows. First of all, words used in the authorized version had become obsolete or archaic due to the development of English over the centuries. For instance, look at Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And uh, verse 2. The authorized version says, he said unto them, have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Now you see, this word since meant something quite different in 1611. And the revised version has quite rightly retranslated it. Um, um, did, did ye receive, did ye receive the Holy Spirit when ye believed? Now that's an important point, you see, English was changing, the, the, um, the use of words was changing. Then again, if you take Galatians chapter 1 and um, verse 11, you know that little phrase I quoted to you last week, which I think is amongst the more quaint sayings of the authorised version, I certify you, brethren. The word certify changes meaning. Today, of course, it means something quite different. If I was to certify you, qualified to do so, it could only mean one thing. But in those days, it meant I declare to you. I make clear to you. And then again, if you look at um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, the authorized version says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now the word prevent has changed its meaning. It doesn't mean here that we shall, we shall not stop them. But it has been rightly retranslated, shall in no wise precede them, shall not go before, in other words. 
I suppose some of you who have done Latin would have understood that. But many people wouldn't, you see. The, the meaning of the word has changed. Then again, in uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, and verse 9, we read, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. Now, I haven't quite got that right. Um, it's one of these verses. Yes, verse 7, not verse 9. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now let us will let until he be taken out of the way. That means something quite different. And it has rightly been retranslated. Only there is one that restraineth now until he be taken out of the way. Then again, James 3 and verse 13. Um, is another example. These are just a few examples of the change that has taken place in English since 1611. James chapter uh, 3 verse 13 and you see the, the use of the word conversation. Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Now, this word conversation today means something quite different to what it meant in 1611. Then it meant conduct, conversation. A person's conversation was not what they said, it was what they lived, their conduct, their behaviour. So it had to be rightly retranslated. Um, let him show by his good life his works in wisdom and meekness. So you can see, and even the little word in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, take no thought for the morrow. Um, so many people have got worried about that. Did the Lord Jesus really say, take no thought for tomorrow? Now you see the revised version has, has retranslated that, be not anxious. And in fact, in 1611, take no thought was a phrase which meant be not anxious. It didn't mean don't think about tomorrow. But don't worry about tomorrow. I mean, the Lord never told us not to think uh, about the future. Uh, but he did tell us not to worry about the future. So you see the difference, um, the difference is the change in usage in English since 1600. And 11. So this was one of the reasons why it was felt that there, there was needed a new translation, a new revision. Second, the second reason was that in a number of instances it was felt the authorised version did not represent the original. Many new manuscripts had been discovered since, since 1611. They were both earlier and more accurate than the ones used in the authorised version translation. And uh, now these new manuscripts could be used and there was reason to believe that they represented the original more faithfully than the ones used for the 1611 version. That was the second reason. And there was a third reason, intensive study of the grammar and idiom of biblical languages, along with many new discoveries of letters and much correspondence and much else to do with the days of the, uh, in which the Bible was written, 
that belonging to that period, had thrown much new light upon biblical words. And it was felt that now they, the, um, the translators could be in a position to much more accurately understand certain words in the original than before. Fourthly, the fourth reason was a translation, however good, is always only a translation. And there is therefore great value in more than one translation. No one translation can have final authority. So these were the reasons why uh, it was felt a, a new revision was needed of the English Bible. Thus, in 1870, um, the first moves were made in the convocation of Canterbury, uh, of Canterbury in the Church of, of the Church of England, which were to result in the revised version of 1881. It was to be a revision of the authorized version in the light of new manuscripts the new understanding of biblical languages and the development of the, of the English language. The revisers were to introduce, they were told, as few alterations as possible consistent with faithfulness whilst following the style of the authorized version. A number of scholars from various denominations <coughs> were invited to join the Anglicans in this work. In fact, there were some 65 people involved in the work. 41 of them were Anglicans. The rest were nonconformists. And two companies were formed out of this 65 people, one for the Old Testament, one for the New Testament. Later, a number of Americans, uh, American scholars, were invited to join in the revision and were invited to form two companies in the States, and all the proofs were sent to them, and their comments and suggestions uh, were to be made upon what they saw. It, it, there were 34 American scholars involved. Now, this is quite important because a little later on it has bearing on the 1901 version. In many ways, the revised version differs from the authorized version because of its more literal accuracy. Now, this is the point. Its principle was a word-for-word -word translation rather than a sense-for-sense -sense or sentence-for-sentence -sentence translation, meaning-for-meaning. -meaning. This had been the authorized version principle, sentence-for-sentence -sentence or meaning-for-meaning. Now, the revisers felt that they, they wanted to keep strict, strictly to literal accuracy, and they wanted a word-for-word -word translation. It is this that has probably tended to produce rather pedantic renderings, and, and it is why the revised version has often been called the schoolmaster's Bible. Two of its most obvious differences are the removal, either altogether or into footnotes, of some of the passages that we all love. Acts 8, verse 37, um, when uh, Philip asked the eunuch about uh, whether he believed with all his heart. And uh, John 5, th verse 3, about uh, the angel troubling the water, and a number of other passages too, which we have already dealt with in previous studies.
The other very marked difference was the introduction for the first time of paragraphs into the Bible. In, done in such a way that, um, uh, that it looked like an ordinary book. The verse numbers were inserted into the actual text so that instead of being um, a, an obviously versified uh, publication, it was more like an ordinary book. These were the two most obvious differences in the revised version. It has never become as popular as the authorized version, yet nevertheless it remains, along with its sister, the American Standard Version, the most useful and valuable version for the student, for the serious student of God's Word. I say that again. The Re English Revised Version, along with the American Standard Version, remains the most important, the most useful, and the most valuable of all the versions for the serious student of God's Word. Its usefulness can be seen in a number of ways. First of all, its literal accuracy in every way, both in shades of meaning to words, in tenses and in prepositions. Now, those of you who realize that prepositions in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, do count, realize how important it is to know whether it's in, or with, or through, and so on. And the revised version um, tended to be literally accurate as far as was possible in its rendering of prepositions and tenses and even in shades of meaning. For instance, our authorized version, if you look up two instances, Matthew 5, verse 29 and 30, and Revelation, chapter 20 and verse 13, you will find the use of the word in the authorized version, hell. The revised version correctly made a difference between these two. For there are two words used in the New Testament uh, translated by the authorized version hell. One is hell and means punishment by fire. And the other means Hades and is the abode of the departed dead. Now in Matthew chapter 5 verse 29 and 30 the Lord Jesus was talking not about the eternal hell of punishment. He was talking of the abode of spirits. Of the, of the departed dead. Hades. But in Revelation 20 and verse 13, you will see straight away that the reference there is to hell itself. For it says that Hades is cast into hell. <laughs> so you can see straight away, you can't cast hell into hell. But Hades is cast into hell. So, you see, it's made this distinction. And another little example. You take the um, words sons and children. These two words are used absolutely interchangeably in the authorized version in the most remarkable way. For instance, you have John chapter 1, 12. The authorized version says, To as many as received him, to them gave he authority to become sons of God. 1 John 3 and verse 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called sons of God. But the uh, Greek, the original, is children of God. 
And then most remarkably in Ephesians 1.5 where we are told that we've been predestined to adoption as the authorised versions of his children. And the word is sons. And although we can't drive too far the distinction between sonship and uh, being sons and children, yet there is a difference. And the revised version correctly makes a distinction between, between children and sons. And all the way through the New Testament it keeps it clear. It calls one word sons and the other children. So that you can clear, you can't get that in your authorised version. There are many other words we could spend the whole evening talking about words uh, that the authorised version has just used interchangeably, sometimes it seems, without any real um, principle. And again, it's a useful version because of its literal accuracy in translating the same Greek and Hebrew word uniformly, as far as is possible, by the same English word. I'll give you one good example of that. In Mark and uh, chapter 1. Now, Mark, whoever wrote Mark, it's probably Mark, uh, but whoever wrote it had a very interesting characteristic in his style. He used the word straightway so many times that it was quite remarkable. Now, our dear authorised version folk decided that they couldn't use the same word so many times in so short a passage. Now, I'm going to show it to you in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 10. I'm going to read in the revised version. Verse 10. And straightway coming out of the water. Verse um, 12, and straightway the Spirit driveth him forth into the wilderness. Then verse uh, 18, and straightway they left their nets. Verse 20, and straightway he called unto them. And then verse 28, and um, immediately, his, I'm sorry, that's the authorised version, uh, 28, and straightway, everywhere, the report of him went out into the whole region. Verse 30, now Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever and straightway they tell him of her. Now if you look in your authorised version you will find that immediately anon <laughs> and uh, straightway are used to try and break up this word occurring again and again. Now that's just a little example of the way the, revise, the revisers felt they must translate the same word as far as is possible by the same English word. And then again, the revised version is very helpful because of its marginal references and its footnotes. These are most important. We can't stay with them this evening, but they are in fact most important indeed for all serious students of God's word, both the footnotes and the margin. The next great um, version of the Bible uh, that we can talk about this evening is the American Standard Version of 1901. Now, why was there an American Standard Version? How far does it differ from the Revised Version? Here is uh, the American Standard Version. I happen to use it. When the Authorised Version was revised, there were two American companies of scholars uh, working in the States with their English counterparts. As we would expect, the Americans were neither so conservative as their English colleagues, nor were they as bound to the Anglican Church, 
who were the sponsors of the revision, as their English colleagues were. Um, in uh, the revised version of 1881, the American preferences are printed at the, at the back. At the back of the, um, if you've got your, an English revised, you will see, it says, appendix. And you will see that all the American preferences, that is, all the American uh, differences, are printed as an appendix, both to the Old Testament and to the New Testament. And the American revisers were bound by agreement not to sponsor a new revision for 14 years after the publication of the English revised version. The English revised version finally came out in 1885 and the Americans were bound by that agreement till 1899. I think I'm right. But they continued during those 14 years to study and revise further. They have also had this great advantage that they have heard all the criticism of the English revised version. Finally, due partly to the fact that in America some unauthorized pirate versions of the revision of the English revised were published, and partly because the American revisers naturally favored their own uh, preferences, their own variations, their own renderings, they published their version in 1901. One of its most marked departures from the revised version is the use of Jehovah instead of Lord in capitals uh, that we are used to in the authorized version and the revised version. Um, It embodies in the text, most of the American preferences for rendering, in some cases it returns to the authorized version. And in some cases it introduces new renderings altogether. But it remains substantially the same version as the revised version of 1881. On the whole, the American Standard Version has been considered to be the most accurate of the two versions, generally by scholars, and many of its renderings, which differ from the English Revised, have been generally considered to be for the good. In fact, it is very interesting that in the New English Bible they have followed uh, quite a lot of the renderings in here and in the Revised Standard Version. Now, I'll just give you a few examples where I think that the American Standard Version is superior to the English Revised Version. As you know, I'm not exactly pro-American, but um, I must say, in this matter, I do agree. For instance, uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah Chapter 4 and um, verse 19. Now, I think most of you know that the Hebrews, uh, in Hebrew, uh, they use different organs of the body uh, um, to explain emotions. They use bowels, kidneys, loins, heart, in a way that we just don't use. 
Um, we only use two parts of our anatomy uh, in this way. We speak of a person's brain or mind. He's got a mind, we say. He's got a mind to do so and so. Or we speak of the heart. But the Hebrews, actually in Hebrew, they use all kinds um, of uh, the organs of the human body to express human emotion. Now, unfortunately, the authorised version, whether they lived nearer to the earth in those days, had no um, uh, difficulty or qualms uh, about translating uh, bowels. But as you can see in, in chapter 4, verse 19, it is a most awful uh, translation. Uh, my bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my very heart. The revi English revised version actually retranslates that. It's the most remarkable thing. My bowels, bowels, I'm pained at my very heart. The American Standard Version, and I quite can't think how the Anglicans could be quite so conservative, the American Standard Version quite rightly translated like this, which is beautiful. My anguish, my anguish, I'm pained at my very heart. But that's obviously right. I can't understand them rendering such a thing. My bowels, my bowels, I'm pained at the very heart. And then again in Psalm 7, verse 9, we have another word which is used, not quite so offensive as the previous one. But chapter 7, verse 9, it is the word, um, the word we use here, uh, Psalm 7, verse 9. For the righteous God trieth the heart and the reins. It is a very interesting thing that the English Revised has actually said the word reins means nothing to most people. That's why we use it. That's actually what they said. They said we cannot see what else we can translate this word. It means simply nothing to most English people, so we'll continue to use it. And so in their version, the, uh, the English revision, they have actually continued to use it and uh, translate exactly the same as the authorised version, the righteous God trieth the hearts and the veins. Now, the American Standard Version, I'm quite sure rightly, has translated it like this. Um, chapter um, 6, isn't it? Or is it 7? Verse 9. Um, For the righteous God trieth the minds and the hearts. The minds, and that's the idea behind it. The minds and the hearts. And then again, if you turn over to chapter 16 and verse 7, you've got the same thought again. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. Now, as, uh, as the American Standard uh, Revisers said, uh, if they were to put in there, my kidneys instruct me in the night season, most people would be horrified. And yet, that is what it literally means. Yet, they say, our English colleagues insisted on translating my reins and stuff, which doesn't mean anything to anyone. So they have, the Americans, being more go-ahead, have put it like this, um, yea, my heart instructeth me. In the night season, that means sense. It makes sense. My heart instructeth me in the night season. That means something. And then again, if you look at Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, verse 22. The authorised version says in this translation, Ye men of Athens, in all things I perceive that ye are 
too superstitious. Now, do you honestly think Paul would have started off like that? Um, the English Revised Version said, has put it a little bit better and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that ye are somewhat superstitious. The American uh, Standard Version said they're quite sure Paul did not start off like that. And what it really meant was this, I, for you men of Athens, I perceive that ye are very religious. Now, it is very interesting that the new Revised Standard Version has done the same, and even more interesting, the new English Bible has, dis, has got this rendering for this word, um, Ye men of Athens, I see that in everything that concerns religion, you are uncommonly scrupulous. Now, that's the idea behind it, you see. So, in many ways, the American Standard Version uh, was a good... Its renderings, not in every case, but in many cases, are to be preferred to the English, re English Revised. Unfortunately, it's now impossible to obtain. And there are some other versions we very swiftly mention that are not really so important. There is a little version we call the Englishman's Greek New Testament. It, is an it has the authorised uh, uh, version in the uh, text. It has the Greek text and an interlinear translation word for word. Uh, it was brought out by Baxter's uh, and um, it, it is in some ways quite helpful. There's also another version which we call the Newbury Bible, which by a whole series of signs and dots and dashes and various types uh, reveals the emphasis, the tenses, etc. Uh, it was brought out in the latter part of the um, uh, 19th century. And then there was this very beautiful little version of the Epistles of St. Paul by Connie Berenhausen, which still is a very fine translation, and even more, has exceedingly helpful and exhaustive notes. It's hard to get nowadays. You can still get it, of course, it, it comes from a bigger work entitled The Life and Letters, or Epistles, of St. Paul. And it was in that that uh, you can uh, get it. There was also another um, that dates from 1900, and um, I think it's 1901, yes, uh, Arthur S. Way's Letters of St. Paul. This was one of the first versions to, to be a kind of amplified uh, translation. In other words, he puts in a tremendous amount that's not in the original, but which he believes is necessary for you and I to understand the original. And in fact, this little version can be quite helpful. It can't be a serious study version, but it can be quite helpful. There were a number of others. There were William Kay's uh, version of the Psalms, and a number of other works appeared in various, at various points during those years. But the next great work that appeared in the history of the English Bible was what we call the 20th century New Testament. And this appeared in 1902, and in fact was the first of the truly modern English versions. This was the parent of all the modern English versions we now have. Actually, not so many people seem to know about it. It was initiated, believe it or believe it not, by a lady called Mrs. Mary Higgs, a wife of a congregational minister and a telegrapher um, called Ernest Mallon, who was the grandson of a very well-known Swiss divine. 
And these two got together and managed to bring together, gather together, 30 uh, men uh, who produced this quite remarkable version. The thing that's so remarkable is not one of those 30 people who engaged on this work was either a linguistic or textual scholar or expert. And in fact, it has surprised uh, many scholars since that they did produce so fine a version. Um, it's it is remarkable in that way. Their concern, the concern that li lay behind their producing this version, was to make the Bible clear to the young people of their day in 1902. The next version that we come to, I think most of you will have heard of, is of course the New Testament in modern speech by Dr. R. F. Weymouth. Now this is a lovely rendering. It's a rendering into very dignified contemporary English. It's a version easy to read. You can read this before you go to bed. You can read a whole letter, a whole book even, quite easily because it is in such beautiful... Uh, contemporary English, but dignified English. In fact, Weymouth was against using racy English. He said it didn't become sacred themes. And uh, so uh, he felt rather strongly about it. Um, on the whole, it's faithful to the original. It's a very valuable help indeed to any of you if you want to um, read through a whole book or a whole letter straight through, in order to get an idea of the meaning. This is the version. It's a very good version. Of course, it's been superseded now by some of the more modern ones, but it's still worth it. For instance, let me just read one little portion, a very involved portion, in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, you can follow it in yours if you want to, but listen how Weymouth puts it, from verse 7 to 10. Now, this makes sense. Now, listen. It is in him and through the shedding of his blood that we have our deliverance, the forgiveness of our offences. So abundant was God's grace, the grace which he, the possessor of all wisdom and understanding, lavished upon us when he made known to us the secret of his will. And this is in harmony with God's merciful purpose for the government of the world when the times are ripe for it. The purpose which he has cherished in his own mind of restoring the whole creation to find its one head in Christ. Yes, things in heaven and things on earth to find their one head in him. Now that's pretty good, you know, for a very, very difficult uh, passage in the New Testament. Then we come to Moffat's version. Uh, a new translation of the Bible, it is called. It appeared in 1913, the New Testament, and in 1924, the Old Testament. Now, Dr. Moffat, James Moffat, was a Scotsman, and he was an outstanding and brilliant scholar, particularly in Hebrew and Greek. His translation of the Bible is both forceful and idiomatic, more so than any that went before it. And in fact, in some cases, to, when compared with those that have come after it as well. It has often been called the Bible in Scots because he insisted, being a Scotsman, in using Scots words. For instance, in Luke chapter 16, verse 1, instead of steward, he uses the word factor. 
and in one or two others, which doesn't mean anything to people in the South. He, it has been called the Bible in Scots. He was a confessed modernist and uh, had no qualms at all about moving whole passages and, in fact, whole chapters and certainly verses to where he thought they belonged. Uh, this can be a little disconcerting. Uh, for instance, I'll show you one portion. I, I don't suppose all of you got very good sight. <laughs> if you can see there, you will see this is from chapter 24 to chapter 27 of Job. In fact, it's 24, 24, uh, 24, 30, 24, 25, 26, 25, 26. You see, he just simply chops the chapters about. Uh, this is a particularly bad portion that I've selected from, uh, from Moffat's version just to show you. But he was a confessed modernist, that is, he didn't believe in the inspiration, the absolute authority of God's word, he believed it contained it, and he had no qualms at all about moving bits and pieces around. As I say, it's very disconcerting uh, in certain parts. He certainly realised his avowed aim to make the original speak in English in its own forceful way. No version is as forceful as Moffat's. Now listen to this. I think this is one of the most... He was absolutely terrific. His gift for... And everyone, everyone agrees, right down to the modern translators, he had a tremendous gift for just putting the Hebrew particularly into just the English that it needed. Now, listen to this. Nahum, which isn't an easy book to read, believe me. Uh, Nahum chapter 3 and verse 1. All cities soaked with blood, crammed with lies and plunder, no end to your ravaging. Hark, the swish of the whip. Hark, the thunder of wheels. Horses a-gallop, chariots hurtling along, cavalry charging the flash of the sword, the gleam of the lance. The slain in heaps, dead bodies piled, no end to the corpses, men tripping over the dead. My word, that's the original. You've lost it in many of the versions. Everyone agrees that this is the finest version of Nahum. Listen to this from verse 11. So you too will stagger and swoon. You too will fly for refuge from the foe. All your forts are but fig trees. Your defenders, the right figs. Shake them, they drop into the hungry mouth. The men inside you are but women. Your bars are burned by fire and the gates to your land fly open in front of your foe. Draw water for your siege. Strengthen your, your defences. Down with you to the mud. Trample the clay. All hands to the brick mould. But, but there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you down. Multiply men like locusts. Multiply men like grasshoppers. Let your traders be more than the stars of the heaven. Yet locusts spread their wings and your half-breeds are like locusts. Your officers are like grasshoppers. Huddling in hedges when the day is cold. And flying when the sun is up. Flying none knows where. Assyria, your rulers are asleep. Your lords slumber in death. Your people are scattered all over the hills with none to rally them. You're shattered past repair, wounded to death. All who are told of you clap their hands over you. For whom have you not wronged unceasingly? Now that's forceful and idiomatic. And there's no version that has quite translated the Hebrew as 
Moffat. Sometimes, I'm afraid, um, his forcefulness uh, resulted in very unfortunate renderings indeed. And it is nowhere more apparent than in the Song of Solomon. And uh, in Song of Solomon and chapter uh, 1, verse 3, the authorised version has here... Um, the authorised version has here, Therefore do the virgins love thee. And the end of chapter of verse 4, the American Standard Version puts it like this, Rightly do they love thee. But um, Moffat horrified the Christians of his day by translating this, The girls are all in love with you. And verse 4, There's no wonder the girls adore you. He insisted that that was the original, and he wouldn't have anything said against it. And then in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 13, where in the authorised version it says um, very beautifully, um, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. He rendered it to the horror of many people. Come, dear, come away, my beauty. <laughs> of course, it is a love story, we know, but it absolutely shocked the people of his name. Remember, nothing had ever appeared like it before. And to most Christians, it was just horrifying. And then again, in chapter 7, verse 1, uh, where the authorised version puts this lovely little word that I remember Hudson Taylor has such a lovely note on, how beautiful are thy feet with shoes. Mind you, it does sound a bit funny, how beautiful are thy feet with shoes. Moffat puts, puts it, how neatly you trip it. <laughs> how neatly you trip it, oh princess mine. And then again in chapter 8 and verse 8 and 9, where the authorised version has such a stately rendering. He renders this, which again all went against Moffat in the eyes of most Christian people, or the lay people. We have a young sister, she has no breasts yet, but what shall we do with our sister when her wooers come? If she holds out like a wall, we will adorn her with silver for dowry. If she gives way to lovers like a door, then we will plank her up. <laughs> <laughs> it's just quite amazing. But um, Moffat, I'm afraid, was not uh, exactly uh, received with wide open arms by many Christian people. Now, Moffat also allowed his own strong convictions to, um, to influence his treatment of the text, as I've already pointed out in his removal of various parts of God's word to where he thought they belonged. I'll give you an example of this which is absolutely amazing. In 1 Timothy, chapter 5 and verse 23, um, there is a verse that Paul, when in his letter to Timothy, said to Timothy, take no more water, but take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Now, Dr. Moffat was a, a well-known total abstainer. He was violently against alcohol. And his conviction was so strong that he was convinced that the Apostle Paul never, ever made such a, uh, gave such advice. So he takes it out of the Bible altogether <laughs> and puts it in a footnote. And this is what he said. It's not even in the text. In his little footnote, he said, the words, give up being a total abstainer, take a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent attacks of illnesses which follow, are either a marginal gloss or misplaced. He had absolutely no authority whatsoever for saying it. No one has ever supported him. They may have thought about other things, but never, never that. 
And yet the amazing thing is this. For all the mistakes and faults of Moffat, well, I won't say mistakes, for all the faults of Moffat, his version is remarkable. Sometimes it is the most helpful version of all if you want to understand some of the books of the Old Testament. If you want to read right through a book, Moffat is sometimes the one that is the most helpful. Sometimes in places he rises to supreme heights. And I don't think his version of 1 Corinthians 13 has ever been better. He put it like this. I may speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have no love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. I may prophesy, fathom all mysteries and secret lore. I may have such absolute faith that I can move hills from their place. But if I have no love, I count for nothing. I may distribute all I possess in charity. I may give up my body to be burnt. But if I have no love, I make nothing of it. Love is very patient, very kind. Love knows no jealousy. Love makes no parade. Gives itself no airs is never rude, never selfish, never irritated, never resentful. Love is never glad when others go wrong. Love is gladdened by goodness, always slow to expose, always eager to believe the best, always hopeful, always patient. Love never disappears. Now that's really terrific. The next version after that we could consider this evening is Monsignor Knox's version. We won't say a lot about it. Um, it came out in 1945, the Old Testament in 1949. Uh, this is a translation of the Latin Vulgate in the light of the Greek and Hebrew original. It is therefore a translation of a translation. It is rendered in the most beautiful English and makes very good reading. It is, of course, an, a Roman Catholic version, and it reflects Roman Catholic teaching in its footnotes. In parts, Knox is superb. Chronicles is supposed to, it is generally said, Bruce, for instance, says that Chronicles, he doesn't think Chronicles is rendered anywhere uh, better than by Knox. And after Moffat's version of the Song of Solomon, Knox's version of the Song of Solomon is simply wonderful. Simply wonderful. It has been considered to be the best English version. It's saying something, isn't it, for a Catholic? It's a good additional version to have if you want down again to read it. Then we come to the Revised Standard Version, which a lot of you use. The Revised Standard Version of 1946. The New Testament came out in 1946. The Old Testament came out in 1952. This is a revision of the American Standard Version of 1901, uh, in the light of all the latest discoveries and understanding. It was made by 32 American scholars, not by British, but American scholars wholly. It has swung away from the more literal renderings of the Revised Version and the American Standard Version to the Authorized Version principle. It's gone back to 1611 to the principles of that translation of, of a freer translation uh, rather than word for word, sense for sense. In some ways it swung too far in that direction, covering some of the finer distinctions, especially 
uh, in the New Testament. This is one of the criticisms against it. Nevertheless, it's a very good version. It's in good English, and it is free from Americanisms. Uh, it has a few American uh, spellings, but that's all. Uh, and it is also, and I believe this is important, it is free from unfortunate peculiarities. Um, which is saying something when you remember these studies we've had on God's Word. It went back to the authorised version, uh, revi and revised version, Lord, instead of the Jehovah of the American Standard Version. Now, I must say and underline this, that this version is invaluable to the serious student of God's Word. You should have a revised version, or an American Standard Version, and this. Uh, these two are absolute musts for the serious student of God's Word. And then we come to Philip's version, and this is a very interesting version indeed. It came out in, uh, finally, as, as a whole, in 1958. In fact, the work began much earlier. First came out the young letters to, to the churches, uh, no, letters to the young churches, and then uh, all the other portions bit by bit, until finally, in 1958, it was brought out as a whole. Now, of all the modern versions, Philip's seems to have found the most universal uh, and real acceptance by Christian people. Indeed, it has become the most popular version since the authorised version. Did you know that? This has been has more a higher sale than any of the versions of the Bible other than the authorised version. It is quite remarkable. It is a direct translation from the original and is in the most racy and colloquial English. No other version speaks the language of the man in the street in quite the same way as Philip's. Philip's himself, by the way, said that he felt when he translated uh, the Greek that it was like wiring a very ancient house without rewiring a very ancient house without being able to turn off the mains. Um, and in many ways, his version has got just that atmosphere about it. You really do get shocks in it just because it is so up-to-date and so racy. In many ways, one prefers it to even the New English Bible, although, of course, it is much more uh, racy and colloquial and even slangy. It uses slang in some cases. Uh, as I say, um, there are some examples of that. If you look at Luke chapter 15... Now, you've got a wonderful version for the man in the street in Luke chapter 15. I'm only going to read from verse 14. But you see, you have... This. And when he had run through all his money, when he'd run through all his money, a terrible famine arose in that country and he began to feel the pinch. <laughs> then he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him out into the fields to feed the pigs. He got to the point of longing to stuff himself with the food the pigs were eating and not a soul gave him anything. It's interesting that the New English Bible has taken over, he began to feel the pinch. But it stopped at the stuff. <laughs> I'm glad to say. Now that's slang. That's not just ordinary English. It really is slang. He stuffed himself. Uh, it's hard to believe that the Lord used language like that, and yet it may be. It may well be. And then again, um, in uh, um, John chapter seven, verse forty-seven. 
Paul, when we read verse 46, no man ever spoke like that, they reply. Has he pulled the wool over your eyes too, retorted the Pharisees? Have any of the authorities or any of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, who know nothing about the law, is damned anyway. Now that's really getting very near to slang. And then again, um, Romans chapter 6, a doctrinal passage. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now what is our response to be? Shall we sin to our heart's content and see how far we can exploit the grace of God? What a ghastly thought. <laughs> now really you shouldn't use language like that uh, that is slang what a ghastly thought now he uses, every time that word God forbid comes in he uses this phrase what a ghastly thought nevertheless it must be said that it was Philip's aim to produce the same effect on 20th century readers as the original did on 1st century readers on the whole his rendering is vital and gripping for instance, listen to these. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Now, I think this is terrific. I can imagine Paul writing like this. You may as well know now that it was my secret determination to concentrate entirely on Jesus Christ himself and the fact of his death upon the cross. As a matter of fact, in myself, I was feeling far from strong. I was nervous and rather shaky. What I said and preached had none of the attractiveness of the clever mind, but it was a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. Now, to me, that's, I'm quite sure that's how Paul wrote. And then again, uh, another little portion, 2 Corinthians 11 and um, verse 17. This is an outburst of Paul, and I'm sure this is how he wrote the letter, because it's not really in such good Greek. I am not now speaking as the Lord commands me. What a thing to write. I am not now speaking as the Lord commands me, but as a fool who must be in on this business of boasting. Since all the others are so proud of themselves, let me do a little boasting as well. From your heights of superior wisdom, I'm sure you can smile tolerantly on a fool. Oh, you're tolerant, all right. You don't mind, do you, if a man takes away your liberty, spends your money, takes advantage of you, puts on airs, or even smacks your face? I am almost ashamed to say that I never did brave strong things like that to you. Yet in whatever particular they enjoy such confidence, I, speaking as a fool, remember, have just as much confidence. Now that's terrific, really, you see. In, that, in our versions, you don't get that. And then again, I think if you look at Philemon, Philemon, and um, verse 10, here you've got some, something again. No... I'm appealing to that love of yours, a simple personal appeal from Paul the old man, in prison for Jesus Christ's sake. I'm appealing for my child. Yes, I've become a father, though I have been under lock and key. And the child's name is Onesimus. Oh, I know you found him pretty useless in the past, but he's going to be useful now to both of us. I'm sending him back to you. Will you receive him as my son, part of me? I should have dearly loved to have kept him with me. He could have done what you would have done, looked after me here in prison for the gospel's sake. But I would do nothing without consulting you first. For you, if you have a favour to give me, let it be spontaneous and not forced from you by circumstances. And then again, it occurs to me that there's been a purpose in your losing him. You lost him, a slave for a time. Now you're having him back for good, not merely as a slave but as a brother Christian. 
He is already especially loved by me. How much more will you be able to love him, both as a man and as a fellow Christian? You and I have so much in common, haven't we? Then do welcome him, as you would welcome me. If you feel he's wronged or cheated you, put it down to my account. And that's beautiful. This version, I believe, is particularly helpful in involved doctrinal passages. The charge is often made against it that it is not a translation, it is a paraphrase. Um, and, of course, th it, there's a lot of truth in the charge, although, in actual fact, strangely enough, Professor Booth defends this version to the hilt and says that, in fact, where a translation ends and a paraphrase begins is very, very hard to define. In, in fact, he says this is a meaning-for-meaning meaning translation. Certainly, it is one that many of you could afford to have, for it is the easiest of all the versions today to read, and certainly challenges you all the time. Uh, then again, as the Amplified Bible, I'm not going to say very much about the Amplified Bible because I want to get through this evening, but the Amplified Bible, the New Testament came out in 1958 and the Old Testament came out in 1962. This is a translation, a new translation, with alternative meanings or additional words to bring out the sense of the original incorporated in the text. In other words, it's another expanded translation. One must, of course, be very, very careful with expanded and amplified translations. Nevertheless, it is undoubtedly very helpful to many people, very helpful and valuable to many people. Um, I'll give you one little um, instance of this. Um, John chapter 1 verse 12 now you all know it, you don't have to look up listen to the way they put it but to as many as did receive and welcome him he gave the authority, power, privilege right, to become the children of God, that is to those who believe in, adhere to trust in and rely on his name well it does help you and uh, then again if you want a little example from the Old Testament uh, Psalm 84, verse 4, Blessed, happy, fortunate, and to be envied are those who dwell in your house and your presence. They will be singing your praises all the day long. Selah, pause, and calmly think of that. That, I'm afraid, is most unfortunate. Most unfortunate. However, they evidently feel that's what it means. Uh, there are also two other study versions which I'd like to mention this evening, just in passing. There is this huge volume called the Thompson's Chain Reference Bible, and I haven't got a copy, um, I'm not sorry, um, of the Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, these two are study versions of the Bible, and both of them in some ways have got to be um, you've got to be very wary with them. Um, not so much with this as with the Schofield. Schofield was a brilliant man and a sound man, but he introduced into the text a whole system of theology and doctrine, even to chronology and uh, uh, dispensational teaching and so on, which is incorporated into the text, and which, to the uninitiated, you tend to think is as inspired as the word itself. And in this sense, it can become very dangerous. 
uh, indeed. So if you do use those versions, use them with care. They're, they can be helpful, especially Thompson's chain. And Schofield's can to a certain extent, but I personally am very much against those that incorporate all these things too much into the actual text itself. Um, now, there is another version before we come almost to the end, and it is this Barclay version. I don't suppose so many of you have heard of the Barclay version of the Bible. Uh, it was um, bought out in fully in 1958. Now, Bruce calls this the, a conservative, he describes it as a conservative counterpart to the revised standard version. I expect you all know there was great controversy over this version when it came out. And this is the counterblast of more conservative theologians. Um, it is not a revision but a new translation from the original by 20 American and conservative scholars. When I'm not talking about their political colour, I'm talking about whether they're fundamentalist or modernist. Uh, they were fundamentalist, uh, conservative, uh, theologically conservative scholars. All known believers, all of them, they felt there was need for a version to be brought out by men who knew the law. And um, they felt that this, uh, that the new version should be brought out uh, for the use of those who didn't want to touch something which they felt to be polluted. Well, that might be a little unfair to put it like that, but it's certainly some of the motives that were behind it. Its footnotes are clearly those of evangelicals. In particular, great care has been taken in this version over messianic prophecy. Now, this is the great charge against this version, that in a number of instances it toned down what was clearly messianic prophecy. Whether that is true or not, we're not going to go into this evening. But in this version was very careful to um, make sure that it was put back again. So in the revised standard version you have, Behold, a young woman shall conceive, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that caused a terrible uh, uh, uproar amongst fundamentalists in the United States, of the more rabid type, because they felt that the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus had been done away. Now in this version, uh, Barclay's version, they put it like this. Uh, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, there are many other ways in which they bring out messianic prophecy, uh, rightly or wrongly. It is very accurate in its translation, but much could be said about its style. I'm afraid that even if they are born again believers, the style is sadly lacking. Indeed it is. And in some cases, I can't believe some of the things that have got into it. I'm not trying to be funny, but I do think you ought to know some of the things that have got into this version. And this is the thing that ridicules God's people. Listen to this. Chapter Psalm 42 and verse... Um, verse 11. Why you bow down, O my soul? Why do you groan within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my face saver and my God. 
My face, of course that means it's true. But it's awful. My face saver. And my God. And then again in 43 verse um, 5, again, hoping God, for I shall yet praise him, my face saver. And my God. And then chapter 44 and verse 12, one tends to blink a bit at this kind of rendering. Um, Thou didst sell thy people dirt cheap. Thou didst sell thy people dirt cheap. And then again, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Romans 11, and verse 27, you do tend to have a little bit of a shock when you read this. No, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 27, I'm awfully sorry. Romans 9, verse 27. You have a shock when you read this. Even though the number of Israel's sons were as the sand of the sea, the leftovers shall be saved. Instead of the remnant. Of course, it's literal. The leftovers. The leftovers shall be saved. It's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. And then there is this amazing uh, little bit in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, which isn't even English. Pattern after me as I pattern after Christ. Can anyone make that out? Pattern after me as I pattern after Christ. It's not even English. I, is it, is it, do you think it is? Well, it's certainly not English. The most amazing thing. But I think, without wanting to be nasty or vulgar, that the, the most amazing thing of all, I don't know how it ever got through the editorial committee of this version is Jeremiah 4 and verse 19, that fearful one that I quoted it low, my pain, my insides, <laughs> that's for my bowels, my bowels, my pain, my insides, let me rise, walls of my heart, my heart is torn within, really one feels like giving him a dose of enos, <laughs> it's the most amazing thing I've ever read, my pain, my insides, I don't know how people can render God's word quite like that. It is rather remarkable, to say the least. However, no doubt it will be revised, and perhaps some of these more uh, amazing bits will be toned down. Well, finally, of course, we come to the New English Bible, which is now the latest and the final one so far, um, of 1961. We've yet to, we are yet to see the... We've yet to see the Old Testament brought out. Now, from Tyndale's New Testament in 1525, right up here, right the way down to, nine, to the um, uh, Revised Standard Version of 46, and in fact really including these ones almost after it, nearly all of them, uh, all these versions, can be traced back to one a source and tradition. This new and latest version that we call the New English Bible is not a revision, but an altogether new translation apart from all previous versions. It remains to be seen how successful it will be. It began in 1946 with a proposal in the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland 
which resulted in approaches being made to both the Anglican and free churches, and the appointment in 1947 of a committee representing all the major denominations to be in charge of this translation. Its aim is to produce a new translation altogether of the Bible in what they call timeless English. In other words, it's not to be in slang, it's not to be in too, it's not to be in too modern English that it will quickly date, but they're going to try and put it into what they call timeless contemporary English. And their aim is not to replace the authorised version, but to produce a new translation to be placed alongside of the authorised version, or revised version. It has gone back to the older principle of the authorised version in translating sense and meaning rather uh, than the more literal rendering of word for word. Its English is good, but one is bothered about the way it um, translates certain phrases. Now, we can't spend very long uh, now, but I just uh, give you an example of this that bothers me personally, and I don't know how much it bothers others. Um, this is the kind of thing I find bothering. John chapter 3 and verse 16, uh, 14. This son of man must be lifted up as the serpent was lifted up by Moses in the wilderness so that everyone who has faith in him may possess, may in him possess eternal life. You know, it bothers me, has faith in him. It bothers me. And they have consistently rendered it by has faith in him. I can't understand why they don't use the much simpler English word trust. Because in many ways it's much, I mean, it's very difficult to translate the word used, really. But even Phillips, I think, is superior to this rendering when he translates it believes. He just goes back to the old word and translates it believes. I'll give you another little example. John chapter 1, uh, verse 12. Um, to all who did receive him, to those who have yielded him their allegiance, now that is a translation of those who bleed on his name. Those who yielded him their allegiance. I mean, it's lovely, yielded him their allegiance. But I'm bothered about it. Because I'm not sure that you can translate uh, the, even those that bleed in, on his name uh, in that way. In other words, if ever it came to the time when people took this as their study version, they wouldn't even know the name of the Lord was in that verse. And therefore all the preciousness of the name would be lost to them. Now that's what makes me realise that this version, in its present form at any rate, will be useful to us for reading. And certainly useful in parts when we're, when we're reaching the unsaved. But I doubt very much whether it will ever be able to become a serious study version. So far there is nothing that can take the place of the English Revised Version or the American Standard Version or even J.N. Darby's version along with uh, the Revised Standard Version and some of the modern versions. Personally, I think that if you have the English Revised 
and the Revised Standard, and you had Phillips, you have three very good versions indeed uh, by which to really seriously study God's Word. Well, there we are. In many ways, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, study we've taken. We must finish now. Um, but uh, uh, perhaps the best way we could um, finish is by reading in this version passage we've read a number of times this evening, which I think does, in this version, it's rather fine again. 1 Corinthians 13, I'll read it to you. And now I'll show you the best way of all. I may speak in tongues of men or of angels, but if I am without love, I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I may have the gift of prophecy and know every hidden truth. I may have faith strong enough to remove mountains, but if I have no love, I am nothing. I may dole out all I possess, or even give my body to be burnt. But if I have no love, I am none the better. Love is patient. Love is kind and envies no one. Love is never boastful, nor conceited, nor rude. Never selfish, nor quick to take offence. Love keeps no score of wrongs. Does not gloat over other men's sins but delights in the truth. There is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit to its faith, its hope, and its endurance. Love will never come to an end. Are there prophets? Their work will be over. Are there tongues of ecstasy? They will cease. Is there knowledge? It will vanish away. For our knowledge and our prophecy alike are partial, and the partial vanishes when wholeness comes. When I was a child, my speech, my outlook, and my thoughts were all childish. When I grew up, I had finished with childish things. Now we see only puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. My knowledge now is partial, then it will be whole, like God's knowledge of me. In a word, there are three things that last forever, faith, Hope and love. But the greatest of them all is love. Put love first. Well, that's a fine rendering. Shall we pray? <clears throat>